He's going to be speaking from Psalms today. I apologize, I just broke my glasses, so bear with me. We're going to read from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from the every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your precept, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. In his book Renaissance, the theologian and philosopher and cultural critic Os Guinness talks about our instant society. This is what he says. We are in the age of a gargantuan, of gargantuan numbers. Truly instant information, ceaselessly hyperactive social media. When the World Wide Web has become a flood-driven Niagara of raw, uninterpreted information and emotion that pounds down on us by the minute with its ceaseless roar and its drenching deluge. My word, that's some descriptive language about our information age. Who can hear themselves think, he continues, let alone make sense of it all with genuine reflection and seasoned judgment. No wonder it is tempting to give up and go with the flow, rushing along with the crowds and sweeping past the best as we chase after the most. It is all too easy to get caught up in the sensational and forget the significant. I think he's right, don't you? Everyone, everyone wants fast, immediate, pre-cooked, pre-mixed, pre-everything, <laughs> microwavable. Uh, it's easier. No one wants slow, deliberate, unhurried, gradual, measured, wait for it. All except Larry Barker, who drives here every Sunday morning at 60 miles an hour on the interstate. And his claim is, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm not passing anybody. I can just get in the right lane and go all the way. Man, I can't do that. Jim Sadie can do that, right? Jim, wave your hand there. I know he can. We don't like slow. I don't even like waiting on my food in the microwave. Two minutes is an eternity. I'm watching the clock. It's going down slowly. Anyway. I think we have a problem. We're more influenced by our world than we know. And the values that we have absorbed make it difficult for us to cultivate a relationship with God because everything about our relationship with God is different from what we see around us in our culture. A, re a relationship with God is not transactional. Um, 
in the way that we think about transactional. What I mean in a transactional relationship, you focus on the benefits you get. So you win, it's okay if you win, but I certainly need to win in this relationship. That's a transactional relationship. I get something out of it. Uh, and if you don't get what you expect, you're out, right? That's why relationships break apart all the time because I'm not getting what I think I'm putting into it and so forget it, I'm done with this relationship. That's a transactional relationship. But see, a relationship with God gets better and better the more time you put him at the center. It's not about my getting what I need, it gets better and better, and this is the paradox of Scripture. It gets better and better the more I put him up there in the center. So the transactional relationship or approach is what do I get out of it? The other approach is how can I lift him up in a better way? And that's much harder, but it's so much more eminently valuable. See, a relationship with God is one of reciprocity where we talk to him and he talks back to us through his word, through his word. This is how he talks back to us. But it's way more important than just reading. Um, one of the best metaphors for what we do with the Bible is mining. I was talking to my mom, who's right here, by the way, right down here. I'm nervous this morning. Um, she was telling me this week that, that she learned when she was a kid in Bible school, she learned this poem about the Bible. And this is, here's the poem. Digging, digging, hallelujah. Happy miners we ever digging for the treasure in God's word we see, hiding nuggets in our heart, mining precious gold, ever storing up the wealth the Bible does enfold. See, the, the best, I think, metaphor for what we do with the Bible is mining. It's mining. It's not just a verse a day keeps the devil away kind of thing. It's a digging in with all we are. See, that's the psalmist's experience. In the very first verse, he says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. For many of us, that's just so foreign. Why would I love that? Oh, I've got to get to it again today. Let me just get through it. And oh, I'm not going to worry about it today. How I love your law. How does he get there? To meditate on his law is actually to meditate on God. So what I just want to look at is three ways, kind of a long intro to get where I'm going. But I promise, well, I don't promise that I won't go too long. I hope not. Let me try not to. Um, I have three things I want us to look at as we interact with this section of Psalm 119. The first one is wisdom and knowledge are two different things. Number two, obedience really does make a difference. And number three, what you love really matters. So number one, wisdom and knowledge are two different things. Number two, obedience really does make a difference. And number three, what you love really matters. First one, wisdom and knowledge are two different things. 
The first thing the Bible does is that it gives us wisdom. Yes, it gives us knowledge about God, but we can't possibly have an inexhaustible knowledge of God. It gives us some things about him, but more importantly, what the Bible gives us is wisdom for viewing the world, if for making decisions, and wisdom for our happiness. In July of 2006, the world-famous geneticist William French Anderson was convicted of child molestation charges. And in a press conference, his lawyer said this, nothing about having 176 IQ means you have good judgment. I think we know that's true, right? Intelligence and wisdom are very, very different things. Very smart people make very bad decisions. We just need to look at academia today. It's gotten a little bit weird on us. So here in our psalm, we have three groups of people over which the psalmist has wisdom. And he, he just, yeah, I'm gonna just mention them briefly. He is wiser than his enemies because God's word is ever with him. That's verse 98. He has more understanding than all his teachers because God's testimonies, his word, are his meditation. I, don't, I didn't write down that verse, but you see it there. And he understands more than the aged because he keeps God's precepts. So let's look at these. Remember that in the Old Testament, Israel was a theocracy, right? So God's people and the nation of Israel were synonymous together. And so when he talks about being wiser than his enemies, he's referring, he's referring to those who would be against God. Anyone who would be against Israel would be against God. That's why the imprecatory Psalms, the ones that that uh, you pray, that they prayed to cast uh, curses on their enemies and that God would come and wipe out their enemies are not necessarily applicable today for us to pray against our political enemies um, because we're not a theocracy and our way isn't the Christian way and necessarily. And uh, so we got to be careful about that. But in those days when he prays against the enemies and he says he has more wisdom than the enemies, why? It's because he had God's law. They didn't have God's law. They were running by the seat of their pants, but he had God's law. We have God's law. Then he says he has more understanding than his teachers. Is he bragging here? No. He's saying no matter how much knowledge his teachers might have, if their knowledge is not derived from God's word, then their knowledge is not wise knowledge. It's not wise knowledge. And thirdly, he understands more than the aged, and this is the same thing. You can grow old and become wise in the ways of the world, but it doesn't make you ultimately wise unless, unless you're wise in terms of God's law. That's what makes you truly wise. But that's not going on in our world. Human beings are in an endless search to find themselves, and they look into all kinds of things to unlock the true meaning of life. I read this this week. The whole UFO movement is absolutely huge now, especially since the Navy released, remember they released that classified document about the UFOs that are out there supposedly, or whatever they had about it. So Anna Merlin is an American journalist who specializes in politics and religion. And in her 2019 book, Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists, she devotes a chapter to the psychology behind UFO conspiracies. 
Um, not just in the U.S., but globally. This is what she says. The intensity, depth, and breadth of the conversation about aliens throughout the world says something profound about human hopes, about our desire to not be alone in the universe, about our wish for some wise and mysterious force out there in the farthest reaches of space that is ready to show us the way. UFO enthusiasm coexists with a certain degree of New Age spirituality, there's a sense that extraterrestrials don't just exist, but that they will someday reveal to us a better way to live, a higher state of being. This is what everybody's in search of. But it's not just UFOs, of course. There's so, so many areas. I read this on uh, those famous Facebook reels. And I promise I don't waste any time looking at those over and over and over and over and over again. You know, you flip up, you flip up, you flip up. The next one will be better, right? Yeah. Um, this is what, this is what, this is the deep wisdom that came from this one Facebook reel. It said this, do you know what happens after your funeral? In a few short hours, the crying will die down and your family will be busy making arrangements for food or drink. Some of your relatives will start discussing current events over coffee. And some people will call your family to tell them that they can't make it because of an emergency. Your employer will begin to search for your replacement. In a few days, your children will go back to work because the bereavement leave has run out. In a month, your spouse will be watching a comedy on TV and start to laugh. You'll be forgotten at an astonishing pace. If people will forget you so easily, then who are you living your life for? You spent your whole life worrying about what people think about you. They don't. So far, it's not that bad. And here's the conclusion. So live your life for you. Live your life for you. That's where you're going to find yourself. If you just look inside, what you feel is the most important thing in the world. And so whatever you feel is the right way to go. And the psalmist says, no, it's not. It's not. Oh, how I love your law. See, this is the world philosophy of the world. My truth, my feelings, my fulfillment, my, 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 my. And it is completely antithetical to what Christianity even is. See, if, we're looking, if we were looking to God's word, we would see that we haven't found ourselves at all because we lost touch with ourselves in the Garden of Eden. We completely lost touch with ourselves. We don't know why we do some of the things that we do and we wonder about it, but we don't wanna go there because it seems too scary. So let's just cover it over. But what God tells us is that knowledge of ourselves is intricately intertwined with our knowledge of him. If we want to find ourselves, we better find him because they go absolutely and 100% together. And so to know him is the only true way to know ourselves. And this is true wisdom to know our dependence. Knowledge and wisdom are different things. Number two, obedience really does make a difference. Verse 101, I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws for you yourself have taught me. I don't think the psalmist is telling us that he has arrived. 
they seem like strong uh, words here that he has done it. He's not, you know, gone away from it. In many ways, we could say that this describes Jesus. And perhaps Jesus wrote, well, he did write this psalm, but this is probably a mess, more of a messianic psalm. But I don't think he's saying that he has arrived. If we go back to verse 5, he says, Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. He's longing that his ways be steadfast, implying that they're not, that his ways are not steadfast. But in this verse, he's wishing for it. So I think the idea here is that God's ways are the best ways. I think that's what he's trying to say. God's ways are the best ways. And that's where the rub is, brothers and sisters. Because they don't seem like the best ways. That's the problem. They don't seem like the best ways. They don't feel like the best ways. So often they feel burdensome. So in my next point, which is about, oh, how I love you, the sweeter than honey or whatever that is in verse 103, you know, he talks about his, the law being sweeter than honey, and that's a true statement. But it doesn't necessarily start out that way. It's not just that you read the Bible and it becomes sweeter than honey and you just love it. If that were the case, we would all be in the Bible all the time. Mining is hard work. If you want to get the gold at the end, you're going to have to get in you're either going to have to find a good machine or maybe a good pickaxe. You're going to have to figure it out. Then it's going to need to be refined. There's going to have to be all kinds of work that goes into this before you actually get the gold nugget that might be useful and that might shine like the sun. See, mining is hard work. In fact, when we start taking God's word seriously and begin to mine its riches, it actually gets worse before it gets better. Well, why is that? Because God's word exposes us. It's like shining a true mirror in front of us. And you got to hear the bad news before you can hear the good news. You got to see who you are. We have all walked around in la-la land. And our culture walks around in la-la land. Doesn't want to see the truth about itself. In fact, it's turned it all on its, on its head. Whatever you think about yourself is true. And that's my truth, and I'm sticking with it, and this is true, and you can't infringe on my truth. And there's a bit of insanity going on. It's a way of covering it over. But the, but the Bible, the Bible shines this mirror and a light into the deepest corners of our heart, and we don't like it. And this is why people reject the word of God. It's too painful, too much guilt, too much shame, too many broken cracks. So what do they do? They throw, either throw the Bible out. They say it's too prudish. It's a list of do's and don'ts. It seems ridiculous. They, they just really don't want to look at what Hebrews says about the Bible. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It exposes thoughts, motivations, actions, desires, addictions, you name it. It exposes all of it. And when you see yourself that way, it doesn't feel like it's sweeter than honey. Who wants that? 
Christians don't even want that. But here's the thing. The first casualty in any change in morality or ethics, the first casualty is always the Bible. It's always the Bible. Dumb it down, lessen it up, change it. It contains the Word of God. It's not really the Word of God. It, we just, it's subtle shift. Oh, it doesn't really mean that. It means this other thing. And this is what happens. This is how you have a change in morality and ethics. Always, always, always the Word of God is the first casualty. Um, but what the psalmist is telling us is that we, if we submit to God's word and let it wash over us and expose us, it's the first step towards sweetness. But there's a second step. It's not just letting it expose us. The second step is much more practical. Do what it says. Even if it feels counterintuitive, that's the point. Um, but that's difficult too, because it feels counterintuitive. In an interview with Jonathan Merritt, who's the son of a Southern Baptist, he was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, his father was, and, and he has now D, uh, what do you call it? He's, he's deconstructed his faith, and he's, he's gay, and he, and he is not buying the Christian argument anymore. But he interviewed N.T. Wright, who's, a, who's an Anglican theologian. And this is what N.T. Wright says. We need to remind ourselves that the entire biblical sexual ethic is deeply counterintuitive. All human beings some of the time, and some human beings most of the time, have deep heartfelt longings for kinds of sexual intimacy or gratification, like multiple partners, pornography, whatever. So many people struggle with that, which do not reflect the Creator's best intentions for His human creatures, intentions through which new wisdom and flourishing will come to birth. Sexual restraint is mandatory for all, difficult for most, extremely challenging for some. God is gracious and merciful, but this never means that his creational standards don't really matter after all. See, they actually do matter. They do make a difference. But it's not just our culture that we're fighting against. Uh, the, the, the biblical position fights again our, against our own sinful natures. It's not just out there. It fights us in here. Think about, just think about some of the things that produce antibodies in us that we just don't really want to do. Think about what it means to forgive somebody. If someone has done something against you, the Bible tells you that you must forgive the person. I don't want to. It's painful. If I go there, it means I'm showing myself to be weak. I don't want to do that. And yet, what he's telling us is, this is the way for the law of God and for God himself to become sweeter than honey. The Bible says that your money's not your own. You're just the manager. Everything you have belongs to him. What will you do with that? 
How will you make that a reality? It goes against everything we want to believe. But then again, the Bible is counterintuitive on almost everything. Because of our fallen sinful natures, we have one way we want to go. We've been so influenced by our culture, we say we haven't, but we really have. And we are going down this path, and the Bible comes in with this laser sharpness and says that you, that's the wrong way. You need to be going this way, not that way. It's almost all counterintuitive, including this phrase from Jesus that I've read lots of times. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Losing myself in the joy of worshiping him. Losing my life with the joy of lifting him higher. So what's the point? The point is that it gets worse before it gets better. That's why we don't like to be in the scriptures. That's why we don't really want to mind the riches because it means I got to change somehow. It means somehow I've got to confront some of the things I'm doing. It means somehow it's going to be painful for me. But this, I promise you, is the path to sweetness. So number three, what you love really matters. Number, verse 103, probably my favorite verse in, in this psalm. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I think the issue has always been the affections. Because that's sort of the crown seed of where you are. Or your affections are driven by your heart. It's, it's, it's always been a heart issue. And what do I mean by the affections? Well, one of the best places to find out about God and the affections is, is the, the great philosopher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote the book about the affections. He was a pastor, a missionary, and he was the, one of the presidents of uh, Princeton College in those days, now it's Princeton University. He was only the president for about two months, though. He became the president, and then he, about two months later, he received a smallpox vaccine, and he had a reaction to it, and he died. Um, but he still was the president of Princeton at one point. Uh, he was very prolific, and I've tried to read. I've read a good bit of Jonathan Edwards, and it's and it's uh, it's a bit of a slog because he unwinds slowly his stuff, and it goes on and on and on. But he has such some really great things in there. A huge influence on two of my heroes, John Piper, um, who has based much of his ministry on some of the things that, that um, Jonathan Edwards has said. But listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. 
better than father and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And yet we live satisfied with the shadows instead of the substance. We live satisfied with the scattered beams instead of the sun. We live satisfied with the streams instead of the fountain. And we live satisfied with the drops instead of the ocean. When God is offering us all of these things, if we would just but mine the riches of his word. Here's another quote. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. Do you hear that? My joy in God's glory, that I have a passion for my joy. This is my joy, but I get my joy in seeing his glory rise and shine over a dark world. That I would get my joy from that. Brothers and sisters, we won't get that if we don't mind the riches. See, that's the point of the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. Why? Well, because it is God's word, it describes who God is. It is his word that tell us, tells us what he does. It is his word that allows us to know him. It is his word that lets us hear from him and to know what he wants from us. A relationship without his word is no relationship at all. If your relationship with him is Sunday's or Sundays sometimes, then it's not really a relationship. It's in his word that we find it. Why? Because Jesus is the living word. And everything described in this psalm was true of Jesus. He was wiser than his enemies, than his teachers, than the aged. He kept all of God's precepts. He held his feet back from every evil way. He turned aside from God's rules. He turned aside from everything except God's rules. His relationship with his father was pure sweetness. This is the God that came and humbled himself, but obeyed in every point because we didn't, and then died the death we deserve and it was sweetness that made him say father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing it was sweetness that in the midst of horrific suffering he was concerned about his mother and told John to take care of her it was sweetness when he cried out it is finished knowing that he had secured for us the sweetness of heaven and his affections were absolutely involved because it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. See, for him, the cross was sweeter than honey because what he gained from the cross was so much sweeter than the pain he endured. He was gaining us. 
I don't think we get this. If we got this, we would immerse ourselves. We would set it as our goal to mine his word, to know him better, to obey him more, to love him more deeply. And so I come to the Bible reading plan. Let's do this. Let's do this together. I'm going to preach from it. I'm going to try to lay it out there before you as best I can with the app. Um, it's on version app of the Bible. There are also, the, oh, at the, there's a website and it gives you, um, there's short videos to give you overviews of books and different things like that. Let's do this. Let's make this the year that we mine the riches and that we know the promises and that we actually believe in the promises of Jesus that are yes and amen. See, that's the gospel and the gospel changes everything. Let's pray.